So this morning, as we focus on hope, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. Hopefully you picked up an outline on your way in. Uh, the answer to the outline will be on the screen behind me, and, and that'll be our, our guide as we walk through and look at this theme of hope in Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to see that Christmas doesn't give us hope because of the warm feelings and the lights and the family time, Right? That Christmas gives us hope because of the decisive action taken by God to intervene in human history. And the continued decisive action taken by God to intervene in human history to bring about His glory and His purposes. And this specific decisive action, which we look at, is the coming, the, the divine conception and, and the incarnation of Christ. A decisive action taken on behalf of His glory and our good. And so this, as I said, this, this action which is set before us, which we see here in Isaiah 7, prophesied about, is the, the divine conception. This action taken by God is one of tremendous importance. It shows us the definitive links to which God will act according to His plans and purposes. This morning, if you are without hope, I encourage you to find hope this Christmas. And I encourage you to find hope in Christmas. For this divine decisive action anchors our hope in the future decisive action at his second advent. This divine decisive action shows us that hope has a name. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we look and read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, our text for this morning, verses 10 through 15. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we... Examine your word today. I pray that it would examine us. That it would shine a bright light of hope in the darkest parts of our heart, which we contain our rebellion and, and try to hide our sinfulness. But Lord, I pray that that would be exposed this morning, that you would show us where and in whom we can find the one, the only true hope that we can find. Pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our understanding of your word. Help us as we walk through your word to apply it to our lives and deepen our appreciation of your grace this Advent season. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So before we dive in, as always, I'd love to give us a little, little context as we consider what we're seeing here in the book of Isaiah. So we learn from chapter 6 
of Isaiah that Isaiah himself was called to ministry by the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. So if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you're, maybe you're familiar with his call. It's, that, that, uh, it's one of the more popular calls of the prophets. Is it's just this grand scene where he's called up to heaven and he's commissioned by the Lord and he's seeing all this and he's told uh, that and he's saying woe is me for I'm a a man of unclean lips and so uh, an angel comes and and touches his mouth with a coal from the altar and just all these incredible things happening and then the Lord says whom shall I send who will go for us and Isaiah says that famous line here I am send me and so then the Lord makes his pronouncement of what his message is to the people. And as he tells them that he is going to uh, understand in part, make a heart, the heart of this people dull, that his message is not going to be a popular one, that it's going to dull the hearts of the people, not sharpen it, right? He's told that he's, he, and then Isaiah pleads, how long? Is that going to be my message? How long am I to proclaim this? And you see in verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. So not exactly the call of excitement, like I get to go and, and see all this change happen in the lives of people. I get to see all these incredible things. And so he gets to go and he makes this pronouncement of repentance but this is not going to be announced what he's going to see droves of people just surrendering and turning in repentance to the Lord. But it's a, a call which he is going to see a lot of heartache and dulled hearts and broken cities. And so as we continue, we see in verse 13 of Isaiah's call in chapter 6, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again in the terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So we see this promise of, of hope, the seed that remains. And so we're told in Isaiah's call that uh, this is going to be a, a tremendously difficult task which he has to take on. And that this happens in the year that King Uzziah died. So this would date the events and the writing of the book beginning around 740 B.C., So giving us that kind of marker, that landmark of the timeline gives us kind of a more definitive time in which all this is taking place. So the immediate context of Isaiah deals with the rebellion of the people. And the specific rebellion of these, the kingdom here is split in two into Judah and Israel. And so he's dealing with the rebellion of these kingdoms. And he both warns them and calls them to repent and return and to wonder at God's grace to them. However, much of our understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do comes from this book, comes from the prophet Isaiah. So how can that be if, if his message was pertaining to the direct context in which he's talking and, and prophesying and that's explicitly spelled out in the call that the Lord gives him? But then we also have much of how we understand Christ and what we understand him to come, his purpose in coming and doing comes from this book. So how do we weigh those out? That if we see Isaiah split his book up, you know, whether this is intentional, I mean, it has to be. We see it, uh, these three portraits 
of Christ, of the coming Messiah painted for us. We see the portrait of Christ as king, which is about chapter 1 through 37. And then in the middle there, we see Christ portrayed as servant. And then, then toward the end of the book, we see Christ portrayed as the anointed conqueror. Well, how can we weigh these things out? That we, we know that this message is for the people that it is given to, but then it also has explicit instruction for how we understand the coming future Messiah. Well, we're going to weigh that out today. I'm going to, I'm going to try to um, explicitly kind of outline some of that for us. But this brings me to another point of context which I want to make before we dive into to, uh, unpacking our text for this morning. And that is that dealing with biblical prophecy. Right? So when it comes to prophecy in the Bible, the word itself has been twisted and converted to mean things which it simply does not mean in the biblical context. It's been twisted and converted to mean future telling and fortune telling and, and things that are coming to happen. And we just don't see that in God's word. And so that's one way that we can kind of sift out the junk from the truth. It's like, okay... Does it look like what prophecy looks like in God's word? Okay, so this is not what we see in the Bible. So the job of the prophet was to proclaim God's word to God's people. We see that right here in Isaiah's call. To proclaim God's word to God's people. Specifically proclaim a word and a message for the specific people who they're called to. Sometimes that's God's people or in the some case, the case of Jonah... It's a totally different people. It's a Gentile people, right? Which, interestingly enough, Isaiah is constantly pointing to how this, this coming Messiah is bringing together, grafting in the Gentiles with, as the people of God. So, as we look at biblical prophecy, and we know that it's the job of the prophet to proclaim God's word to God's people, this oftentimes includes details of God's future purposes. So this is what's been twisted and converted, right? Because we, we think of prophecy the way, the context in which we use the word and the way we see false prophets using the word. It's fortune-telling, storytelling, future-telling, right? Now, when biblical, in biblical prophecy, we see these prophecies include details of God's future purposes. We see this including God's future purposes and warning of future judgment, so what it did not look like was someone standing before the people declaring today or tomorrow, you're going to go here and do this, and you're going to be wealthy beyond any reason that you have, right? That's not what we see ever in biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy specifically as it pertains to future prophecies of God's action always come directly from God. We saw in our outline on Sola Scriptura that no prophecy ever came from the interpretation of man, right? So they either come directly from God and they had direct fulfillment for the people that it was spoken to. In fact, we see the Lord tell Jeremiah to challenge the false prophets of his day by pointing out that none of what they ever said came to pass, Right? So this is the important part for us today when it comes to Messianic prophecy and looking at Isaiah 7 is understanding this, that biblical prophecy had an initial fulfillment. It had a fulfillment for the people that it was spoken to. It meant something to them. 
And so they were looking for that fulfillment. But then biblical prophecy also has a future fulfillment when it comes to these messianic prophecies. So initial fulfillment, future fulfillment. A, a shadow and a type, and then you have the true fulfillment. That is that these prophecies had meaning and fulfillment in their day and time. They had an initial fulfillment, right? However, as we know, reading this through the lens of the cross and, and through the lens of the, the empty tomb, that they also had greater meaning and purpose found in Christ. And I'll show you what I mean by that as we press on this morning. So verse 10 again. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So that immediately gives us context. He's spoken to Ahaz previously in the verses before this, right? Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So blank check, right? Like ask a sign of the Lord your God. And it can be anywhere in between here and there. Okay, there's big margin for error there. But, this is one of the negative buts that we see in the Bible. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So who spoke to Ahaz telling him to ask? The Lord spoke to Ahaz. And then Ahaz refuses in uh, this self-righteous, self-honoring manner. I will not put the Lord to the test. Right? But it's the Lord who's just told you to ask. So, in an incredible act of grace, God offers to provide Ahaz with a sign of tangible hope. And why, why does he need hope? Well, if, you, if we look back to here, some of the preceding verses, you see that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So there's all these enemies of the people of God are, are, see the kingdom split. They're getting ready to conspire together to rage war against the people. And so verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, so they've been warned, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So they're terrified because the enemies, their enemies are surrounding them. They're, not only they're surrounding them, they're conspiring together to overthrow them. And the king himself, his heart is shaken as the wind shakes the trees of the forest. And the Lord said to Isaiah, verse 3, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. So he tells, him, he tells Isaiah, go out and deliver this message of hope. That the Lord is with them. The Lord is for them. That he is going to fulfill his promise to his people. And we see Shear Jashub is Isaiah's son, right? Go out, uh, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. And interestingly enough, the name of Isaiah's son there, Shear Jashub, means a remnant shall return. That will come to play here in a little bit. So he tells them to go out and meet them. And deliver this message of hope. And he specifically tells him, take your son, whose name means a remnant will return. Right? And so they told, go out and meet them and not let their heart be faint. 
And they're told to give this message, and the Lord speaks to Ahaz again. So that's where the again part. Like he delivers, so Isaiah delivers this initial message, and then the Lord speaks to Ahaz again. And he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So like, just total, ask whatever I need to do to give you and my people confidence and hope that I am with you. So, this is a complete act of God's grace that he's going to provide this sign of, of tangible hope. So, through Isaiah, God offers this chance for Ahaz to see his plan, to see God's control and God's actions in a way which will give him all the confidence he needs to then lead the people and be the king that the people need him to be. But you know what we read of Ahaz in 1 Kings? If you're familiar with kings, you know, you have this, uh, this ebb and flow of this king did what was right in the Lord's sight and was honoring and pleasing to the Lord, right? And then you have those kings that did not do what was honoring and pleasing to the Lord and did not do what was right in the Lord's sight. Well, Ahaz was one of those did nots. So we see, just as we looked at in our lesson uh, over our series over um, Sola Scriptura, that God spoke. He spoke directly to Ahaz's situation, ready to meet his hopelessness despite of his rebellion, despite of his displeasing leadership of the people of God. He was ready to meet his hopeless outlook with a sign of undeniable hope in himself, in God, right? And time and time again throughout Scripture, we see God decisively speaking to bring about his purposes and accomplish his plans through fallen men. And this is one of those situations. So Ahaz has shown no fruit of saving faith. He's led God's people in a displeasing manner. And yet God meets him where he is and offers to be his God. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. This brings me to my first point though. In considering God's grace and, and God's action here, we see here that the Lord is not a passive observer. The Lord's not just sitting by and letting Ahaz lead his people to ruin. He's not just sitting by and letting Ahaz and the people shake like the trees in the wind. But he's speaking directly to their situation, acting in accordance with his purposes. Church, we, we must realize that the arc of history bends to the will of God for the glory of God. And too often, we think so little of God that we would have him play the role of some cosmic watcher. Like he's just up there watching, not, not doing or designing or, or purposing or acting, but he's just watching. Every time the psalmist pleads, he's pleading because he knows that God does act. We would make him out to be just some passive observer as if he's always idly standing by as we suffer and toil. We would ask God, why won't you do something? Rather than asking, Lord, how are you at work? You see, though, both of those come from a place of, of anguish, but one is seeking, God, how are you at, at work in the midst of this situation? And one is like, poor 
pitiful me. Do something on my behalf, Lord. Rather than, Lord, how are you at work? God is not sitting back on his couch watching us make a fool of ourselves with no ability to act. Now, does he allow us the ability to wander our dark paths of self-indulgence? You betcha. But he uses those dark wanderings to draw us back to himself. So as we watch this scene unfold, take note now of how God uses Ahaz's sinful disobedience for his own good purposes. See, the Lord said, ask a sign and I'll, I'll give it so that you don't have to shake like a tree, so that my people don't have to shake like a tree, so that you can have hope and confidence in that I am at work in this moment in time. Though all these nations are gathering against you, I am working in it. Ask a sign, I'll show you. But Ahaz says, no, I won't ask. So I want you to note as we, this scene unfolds, how God uses Ahaz's sinful disobedience for his own good purposes. The sinful disobedience of man does not ruin the plans of God. The sinful disobedience of man does not ruin the plans of God. Rather, he includes that in his sovereignty to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And this is what we see unfold right here. So don't allow yourself to have such a small view of God that you lose hope for lack of faith in his sovereignty. For this is what Isaiah rebukes Ahaz for. So we keep reading here. Verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So because of Ahaz's stubborn sinfulness, he refuses to obey the plea to go before the Lord. He refuses the Lord's invitation to ask a sign, and I'll give it to you, in humility and seek guidance. This is what it would require. Ahaz would then have to submit himself to the Lord, acknowledge that the Lord is the one in control here and not him as king, right? So that just can't be done. So Isaiah's challenge here is a direct challenge of Isaiah's lack, excuse me, of Ahaz's lack of hope in God's faithfulness. Did you see what he did here? He drew a direct line to the Davidic covenant by referring to Ahaz as O house of David. So there's no longer just a, a personal interaction, but now he's including the nation as a whole. And he says, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So Ahaz, not only have you wearied the people of God by leading them astray, being a poor king, being one of those that did not do what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and now you weary God. So just to make sure we're tracking here together, the kingdom, again, divided on the brink of war, surrounded by nations who have conspired together. The current king does not honor the Lord. Seems like a pretty good recipe for disaster, right? Seems like the perfect time in history for all that God has done and all that God would promise would happen through the house of David, through the line of David, to just be wiped away and forgotten. Hear then, O house of David. God has planned and promised that he would bring a savior through the line of David for his own purposes. So take note that the word weary here does not connotate 
God's shrinking in power or ability, as if the decision that Ahaz has made has somehow made God weak and feeble, so his plans can't happen anymore, right? Rather, it points us to God's long-suffering grace and kindness in the face of his people's unceasing rebellion. God is wearied by our unceasing rebellion, but he is not rendered powerless. Ahaz's rebellion and disobedience are just a continuation of a long line of failure for the house of David. And so here they sit on the brink of destruction. So what do we make of this? What does this have to do with Advent or Christmas or any of us in the modern church? We need to understand something, church. And that brings me to the next point this morning, is that man's sinful disobedience does not impede God's purposes. Man's sinful disobedience does not impede God's purposes. But rather, man's sinful disobedience is included in God's sovereign purposes, which are to bring glory to his name. So don't think for a second that something bad happens in this world and God is like, oh man, I guess I'll try something else. Or like, whoa, how did that happen? Because we'll often hear people talk of their own sin or the sins and the choices of others or world actions, just things going on as if they jeopardize God's plans and God's ways and God's sovereignty. They'll fear that because they've done this or that or because something or this or that has happened in the world, because they've been disobedient in this way or that, that they'll somehow cause someone not to come to salvation or that this world event will interfere with God's plans or interfere with what may, God may be doing in a certain situation. Friends, know, know this. There is nothing that we can do to stop God's will from taking place. Because notice the change in tone and possession here. When Isaiah first delivers the message, he says, Ask the Lord your God. That's, that's what the Lord says through Isaiah here. Now that Ahaz has defiantly refused, now it's just Isaiah speaking in verse 13. And Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So at first it was ask a sign of the Lord, your God. And now it's real clear. If you're going to live in disobedience to him, he is not your God. So would you weary my God also? So the, the possession changes here. The judgment is clear that should you not follow his ways, then you are clearly not his so where do they go from here? Because that's the, that's the judgment on the people as well. They find themselves split as a kingdom because of not following God's ways. They find themselves surrounded by their enemies because of not following God's ways. And yet here God is saying, I'm with you. I'm here. Let me show you hope. So... Where do they go from here? Where can they find hope that God's promises will endure through this? Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You wouldn't ask for it, but the Lord's going to give it anyways. And he's going to give it himself. He told you to ask. You didn't do it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So I want to break this down because this is the the most well-known one from this this portion, uh, this messianic prophecy, right? This is the most well-known part. It's this this prophecy. It's quoted in Matthew. We'll read that here in a little bit. But I want to break this down because there are two points which I want us to take away from this. First of all, we see our famous Bible word right there, therefore, right? So because you weary God, because you've disobeyed and led his people astray, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. So in other words, because you're disobedient and did not ask for a sign, the Lord himself is going to do it decisively. He's going to decisively act to give his people hope and assurance. The important change here is the you. So in verse 10, Ahaz is told to personally ask for a sign. It started as a, a personal conversation. So then, as I pointed out a little while ago, Isaiah then makes this a communal Discussion. Oh, house of David, that everyone is guilty of this. And so the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. So this is a y'all, if you want to read it like that, all right? So this is not you, Ahaz. He's saying the Lord will give you, the people, the house of David, a sign. So he's given total freedom. That's the you. And he's asked to give a bigger, small sign. He doesn't. So this does a few things. It rallies the people. If, if, if he would have asked for this sign and, and been in obedience to the Lord, this would have rallied the people to, around his kingship in a way that honors God. It gives the people hope that God is with them and that everything is going to be okay. And it aligns Ahaz with God's plans and purposes, totally redeeming his rule as king. But as we've already read, he refuses. So now the Lord himself is going to give you, the whole nation, a sign. So what I want us to see here is that the Lord acts decisively to bring about his purposes. We've already said he does not stand idly by. The disobedience of man does not impede him. But the Lord acts decisively to bring about his purposes. What a great and confident hope we can have as believers, knowing that no matter what or how sinful man rebels, God is going to act to bring about his purposes. Does he always act in the way that we think or that we want him to or that we would imagine he should? No. But he always acts decisively and in accordance with what he has purposed to do. And that is where our hope lies. The next thing I want us to see here is that God's perspective of hope is eternal. In this pronouncement, God is providing a present hope through a future promise. He wants his people, his remnant, to hold fast to his word and take courage in his promises that they may praise his name. So he provides them with present hope through the promise of a future event. So this is where what I mentioned a while ago comes into play. This is where it's important to properly understand the context of biblical prophecy. As I noted at the beginning, when it comes to true biblical prophecy, we see an initial fulfillment, and this is often referred to as a shadow or a type. Then there's a future fulfillment or the reality, the confirmation of that prophecy. So in this prophecy, we're told a virgin will conceive. 
So, since there was an initial fulfillment of this prophecy, does that mean that there were two virgin births, two divine uh, conceptions? Of course not, right? So the initial fulfillment was that there was a virgin who conceived by the means which God designed and who gave birth to a son whom she called Emmanuel. And this was a sign for the people. The birth of this boy was a sign for the people that there was hope, that God was with them, and that he understood where they were at, and that he was acting in accordance with his will in the midst of all this chaos. For the people at the time, this was a sign of great hope. He himself has given us a sign that we may know it. And as we, read in, uh, as we read in verses 15 through 17, we see, because often when we read that prophecy, we stop there at verse 14. But when you look at the continuing verses, you realize, oh, yeah, so he shall eat curds and honey. So that's a real person. He'll eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose, king, whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this is obviously talking about the direct time in which they are acting. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So this prophecy is clearly within the context of the time. That's the type. That's the shadow, right? So about the time that this boy's early life would, so this boy's early life would be a marker of hope for the people that their suffering would not last but would have an expiration date. So when he comes of age, when he becomes mature and he understands God's word and he knows how to choose good and evil and how to discern between the two and he eats curds and honey and, and when all this happens with these two kings and when Ephraim departs from Judah and all this happens within your time. Right? So this is the initial fulfillment. So what does this mean? If that's the type, if that's the initial fulfillment, then what was the future fulfillment or reality? I'm glad you asked. If you'll please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1, we're told exactly who this sign of hope is as the future, as the true fulfillment of this prophecy. Matthew chapter 1, starting verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So there's the true fulfillment of this divine conception prophecy. So at first, we see that it's fulfilled in its day and time as a type, as a shadow of what was to come. So it's fulfilled in the natural ways which God designed. Now it's been fulfilled in a divine, miraculous way by the Holy Spirit. So she was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he, obviously, as we all know, part of the story, Joseph is not want, uh, culturally doesn't want to put her to shame. He doesn't want to be a part of this. So he resolves within himself to divorce her. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the type, the shadow, is just a normal boy eating curds and honey, learning God's word, how to discern good and evil. The true future fulfillment is not simply a timeline of hope lived in a normal boy but is hope itself come in the person of Jesus to take away their sins. The, the type, the shadow, no sins were taken away by this boy, but the true fulfillment takes away their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Matthew helps us. Sometimes we need help in these things, right? He, he shows us, like in case you didn't catch that, This was exactly what the Lord was doing. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the shadow was that a virgin conceived by natural means, the prophetic word more fully confirmed was that a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. The type was brought about by natural means. The reality was the divine conception. The shadow was a normal boy named Emmanuel who was a symbol of hope for the people and a marker for their future deliverance. The confirmation was no normal boy but God himself in the person of Jesus stepping into flesh to be with his people and for his people. Not as a symbol of hope but as hope itself. Not as a marker of deliverance but as the deliverer. Which brings me to my last point this morning, which is that Christmas is God's decisive action of hope. Christmas is God's decisive action of hope. Because in it we see the true future fulfillment of what God had spoken long ago. Not the shadow, but the actual things. When I look at a shadow, I can kind of see what I look like. When I see myself in a mirror, in a picture, when others see me, that's the true me. That's what I know I look like, right? I see my shadow. It's contorted. It depends on where the sun's at. It's just kind of like unclear. But the true thing is clear and evident. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the hope of Advent, past, present, and future, that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Our Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is the decisive action of hope because our Emmanuel was born to die. The hope of Christmas is that God decisively acted according to his great promises and steadfast faithfulness and that he will one day do so again. So true hope is found in Christ. We read this, we read this just a few weeks ago um, on a Wednesday night. We prayed through this passage. This is November. Our, our theme for prayer on Wednesday night has been hope. And we read this in Hebrews chapter 10. If you just want to make a note of it, uh, right off the side, I'll read it for you. Where we read chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that, that in and of itself, if you're a Jew, like confidence to enter the holy places? What in the world? But to finish the sentence, by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And this is the hope of Christmas. This is the realization of Christ coming to be our Emmanuel, our guide with us. Let's pray. God, we love you. Pray that you would make this hope-filled reality an ever-present reality in our hearts. When we're tempted to shrink back and rely on ourselves, rely on what we know, what we feel, what we touch, let us remember that Christian hope is not wishful thinking, but assurance and steadfastness in your promises. So as we celebrate hope this Advent season, let us do so boldly with all thanksgiving to your grace to provide Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.